Daphne Carona Galizia was one of those journalists they make Hollywood movies about. In her small home country of Malta, she wasn't just the most popular journalist, she was more popular than the journalism industry. Her blog, Running Commentary, was more widely read than all Maltese newspapers combined. But what made her Hollywood material wasn't that she was popular. It's that she was the type of investigator to make enemies and continue doing so even when her life was on the line. Death threats for Daphne were a daily phenomenon. In three decades, she was the victim of arson not once, but a few times. And being Daphne's dog was almost a death sentence by itself. One dog of hers had been poisoned and another shot. One day in 1996, she awoke to her dog laid out on her front porch, its throat slit. In 2016, Daphne got her hands on one of the biggest scoops of her professional career. It implicated some of Malta's highest government officials in criminal activity. It was going to be messy. But after decades of burned houses and murdered pets, she wasn't exactly going to hold back this time. She broke the story. Over the following year, more stories and leaked documents made it onto her blog. The most important political figures in the country were now in hot water, including the prime minister, his chief of staff, and another high-ranking minister. On October 3rd, Daphne was driving not far from her home when a bomb exploded in her car. She was killed in an instant. Her son identified the remains a full 80 meters from the site of the explosion. I looked down and there were my mother's body parts all around me, he wrote. Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. In previous episodes of this podcast, we've told stories of people like Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning. These were individuals who, when faced with dark realities about the powerful and corrupt, willingly put their lives on the line to spread the truth. The sheer balls necessary to do that is, frankly, baffling to me. To drop any sense of a normal life, attempt such a dangerous leak, and keep your composure long enough to pull it off, who would put themselves through something like that? Daphne Galizia is one journalist who did it. But she wasn't alone. She was just one part of a much larger corruption story involving other journalists around the world who also, in doing what they were doing, were putting their lives in direct danger. At the heart of it all was a man who happens to be the guest on this episode of our show. My name is Bastian Ohlmeyer from Munich. I am um, leading uh, the investigation department at Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is the biggest um, daily paper in Germany. 
One evening in the winter of 2015, Bastian Obermeier was at home with his family. He was okay, but everybody else in the house was sick. His parents, his wife, his kids. Maybe it was an omen. He received a ping on his phone. Hello, this is John Doe. Interested in data? Who are you? I'm no one. Just a concerned citizen. Someone who called himself John Doe asked me if I was interested in data. And I said, yes, um, as I find that data is always a good thing because it's kind of neutral in the beginning and, and you can see what, what you want to do with it later. The nature of this data was not yet clear. In fact, it hardly seemed all that important. Well, in the beginning, I didn't know what to think of it. Um, we get many texts, we get many, many emails, we get many letters, actually written letters still, from people who tell us that, you know, they have the biggest story on earth. And usually most of it is BS. But still, you know, it's my job to read it and to think about it. There is just a mind-boggling amount of criminal activity going on here. How much data are we talking about? More than anything you have ever seen. Did you get a sense of this person? I imagine it's not like being a... You can't really get to know them like a Tinder date, but what they were <laughs> like, you know, what they were after. You're talking to this guy for a while, or this person, rather. The, the person was very much to the point, and that's always a good sign. I want you to report the material and make these crimes public. Why are you taking the risk? I can't explain my rationale without making my identity clear. And I, I got very early in the beginning that this person really had an interest that was not so much his personal interest, but more like a mission. And usually as a reporter, you get a lot of contacts from people, a lot of mails, letters from people who have a very special special interest. They want you to do this or that story or, or that story with a certain spin or whatever. And that guy, he just wanted me to look into it. And he, he seemed to be really generally interested in a journalist looking at that company and the documents that he had obtained. After some time, the two built a report. The source demonstrated they were serious, and Bastian demonstrated he would take them seriously. There are a couple conditions. My life is in danger. We will only ever chat over encrypted files. No meeting, ever. I don't know exactly why he trusted me. I really tried to be careful. I really, really tried to help the person to set up a secure line to, to make sure that he doesn't have to reveal his identity when handing over the first set of documents. And yeah, maybe that was helpful. The two open up a private encrypted channel through which documents could be transferred. 
for security reasons, he could not disclose to us by what means they did so. But we can speculate. Ordinary news tips typically go straight through a paper's phone line or general email. More serious tips might be communicated via WhatsApp, which encrypts all of its messages. When Edward Snowden first contacted Glenn Greenwald, he used PGP encrypted email, and other leakers have done the same. But PGP can be difficult to set up for people with less technical background than Ed Snowden. And WhatsApp has been exploited in some high-profile cases. For example, that weird time when the Saudi crown prince Salman hacked Jeff Bezos. An easy-to-use alternative to WhatsApp these days is Signal, another end-to-end encrypted messaging app. Signal is also free and open-source, but was only released in its current form after the events of our story here. Bastion's leaker might have been best off using either SecureDrop or GlobalLeaks. These two services, free and supported by freedom of speech-focused nonprofits, use the Tor network, typically with Tails, a security-focused Linux distribution, in order to protect the IP, location, and identity of the leakers who use it. SecureDrop, in particular, requires that journalists go through a labyrinthian process requiring multiple USBs and computer systems in order to secure the data uploaded by an anonymous source. So when this data comes to you, is it dumped all at once or over time? How do you handle that? So we, we, we received it in batches. There were too many documents to send all at once, so the leaker sent a small batch of them, a taste of what was to come. Bastian brought in his colleague, Frederick Obermeyer, no relation, to help make sense of what he saw. Bastian, could you give our listeners a sense for what it's like to be in that position during that point in your life? when you get that first message or the moment when the weight of the story really sinks in? Well, the, the first message wasn't that, you know, it didn't feel like, you know, this is, a, this is you know, the beginning of something big. It, it was more like there might be a story somewhere, let's see. But when we found the best friend of Vladimir Putin in that and the sitting prime minister of Iceland and the data grew and grew in our hands and and so th- then we realized okay that there this is you know something big Bastian hadn't had a clue what he'd gotten himself into but boy was it becoming clear now the documents came from a law firm which specialized in helping the rich evade taxes by funneling their huge amounts of money through artificial shell companies. Among those named in the documents were billionaire tycoons, CEOs of companies like Adidas, Barclays and Citigroup, famous celebrities from Shakira to Jackie Chan to Lionel Messi, and current and former heads of state from Italy, Australia, Ukraine, Iceland, Iraq, Argentina and more. 
you know, that, that wasn't funny anymore. And, and at the same time, we realized there was no way back. A few years ago, I wanted to subscribe to a certain popular music streaming service. As an avid music lover, I was more than willing to pay for the subscription, but unfortunately, that service wasn't yet available where I lived, in Israel. I had no choice but to use a VPN, a virtual private network, to mask my true location. And let me tell you, I wish I'd heard about ExpressVPN back then. Finding a good, trustworthy VPN service with low latency took a lot of trial and error. But ExpressVPN, it just works. It took me 30 seconds to install, no configuration necessary. One tap of a button and I could immediately choose from more than 3,000 servers to connect through. Easily the best VPN experience I've had so far. ExpressVPN is a great solution for when you're connecting to an unsafe Wi-Fi network, such as a typical coffee shop, and for keeping your browsing activity private from your ISP. If you didn't know, all ISPs in the US can legally sell your anonymized information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is rated as the number one VPN service by both CNET and Wired, and is available on almost every platform. Phones, computers, routers, even smart TVs. Visit expressvpn.com malicious, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash malicious. We thank ExpressVPN for their support of Malicious Life. As the documents rolled in, two things became clear. Number one, the leaker had good reason to stay anonymous. Number two, simply by viewing these documents, Bastian and Frederick were also now in danger. But before all of the craziness, you still were in those early stages in some danger. Maybe it's um, normal to use an investigative reporter, but when you no, agree to take the story... No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no, I was no. saying... <laughs> go ahead. No, no. So when we realized that which, which kind of people we were starting to mess with, you know, we thought a lot about safety and security. Of course, also about our families and about ourselves. And you don't want to mess with Vladimir Putin. I mean, he's a guy who probably, you know, gave order to have people killed in in the last years. And um, we found money that had belonged to mafia, mafia clans. We found money in offshore companies related to drug um, cartels and to all kinds of dictators. We found companies that were owned by the cousin of Bashar al-Assad from from Syria, and and with, you know, he probably used those companies to buy fuel for for his planes uh, to bomb his own people. If the wrong people caught word of the impending leak, the consequences to those involved could not be overstated. 
we established in the beginning of this episode what happens to people who have such sensitive information to share. So it was imperative that Bastian keep all of his data under tight wraps using encrypted communication channels and protected offline databases. But ordinary security procedures weren't enough since this wasn't an ordinary data dump. Could you give me a sense for the scale of this data, just how much we're talking about? So in the end, we had more than 11.5 million documents, and I think it was 2.7 terabyte or something, which is, it doesn't sound like a lot now, <laughs> but it, it sure, sure sounded like a lot back then. Um, back then it sounds like a lot. Yeah, well... <laughs> Um, when we started this, um, the biggest data leak that any journalist had worked with had been the offshore leaks with 260 gigabyte. And, and when we reached that level after a couple of weeks, I got really excited because, you know, we, we now, uh, we knew we were, we were sitting on the biggest leak any journalist ever, ever had gotten their hands on. Not only was this the biggest leak in the history of journalism, it was 10 times larger than the previous record. And I realized that I, I had to stop what I did in the beginning. I, had to, I didn't ask for more because at some point I had to assume that this person still had access to the data and I didn't want to make him go steal for me, you know? The sheer amount of data the leaker had access to made even the simple task of receiving and storing new batches of documents a problem. Bastian and Frederick brought in more of their colleagues, but they weren't exactly IT experts. And it kept growing and growing and growing, which was also a, a huge disaster for us at Südische Zeitung because we already had to buy a a new computer for the um, for the data when we when we had only like a hundred gigabytes, and then we had to buy another one for five hundred gigabytes. And when we broke the one terabyte sign, <laughs> uh, when we broke through this wall of one terabyte, we had to buy a new computer for like seventeen thousand euro, which is a, a huge amount of money for us. Mm-hmm. And but we needed to have more capacity, and so it was really the technical side was never under control while we worked on that. Keeping a tight hold of so much data required newer, better machines than they had at the Süddeutsche Zeitung offices, and more technical wherewithal than this small group of reporters was used to. However, the biggest security threat posed by all this data had nothing to do with equipment, but rather access. In the very first days, we thought that's a big story, and it's a big international story, and we are too small in Germany, we don't have that experience. We have to have partners. And as we had worked with the ICRJ before, that was kind of a natural decision for us. ICIG stands for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. 
It's an organization which brings together reporters from over a hundred different organizations in 80 countries around the world. Süddeutsche Zeitung sought their partnership because 11.5 million documents was far more than Bastian and his team could handle on their own. But with added help came added risk. So I'm trying to put myself in your position for a moment. And I'm asking, in those early stages, is it safer to be the only one who has this information or to spread it around to as many of your colleagues as possible? Because on one hand, the more people who have this dangerous information, um, the, the less of a target there is specifically on you. But also there's a risk that um, one of your colleagues is talking on the phone and somebody overhears them or they tell their wife when they're at home. Yeah. Um, we were fine in the beginning with having partners that we already knew and already had worked with from the Guardian and Switzerland and from France. You know, those were like our friends. We trusted them and we had worked with them on the Luxembourg leaks or on the Swiss leaks, you know, and we realized that every new partner, every new person we didn't know was a huge new risk for the investigation for our source and for ourselves. But at the same time, it made completely sense to add partners in Iceland, for example, where we had found the Prime Minister, because we couldn't do the story without a partner in Iceland. And so this was what we thought about for every country, and we found good arguments for every country that we later added. The downside, that it got riskier and riskier because um, we now had like literally hundreds of people in the team that we didn't know and you know only a handful of them worked alone most of them they brought in more colleagues i'm sure a lot of them told their partners their wives their husbands and so it was completely impossible for us to oversee how many people knew about our story. All of a sudden, Bastian had very little control over where the documents were and who was seeing them. In just a few months, hundreds of people joined in the project. But there was no way, you know, to shield our paper or us from, from that danger. And... We only, we, on, we only could rely and count on the team spirit that, you know, everyone sticks to the rules. The most important rule was shut up or encrypt. And um, we were just hoping we make this work. There was one security benefit to bringing in more journalists. At the very beginning, when Bastian and then Frederick were the only two people who knew of the leaks, they had huge targets on their backs. I mean, really, how hard would it have been for Putin to neutralize one or two reporters? He's done it before. But now that hundreds of reporters all had access to the data, Bastian was probably safer for it. But the same couldn't be said of his source. If some powerful person included in the leaks were to find out the leaker's identity, who knows? 
what we try to do is, of course, we shielded as much as we could about our source. So we only gave away very basic information about how we had obtained it and, and all that stuff. Once all 11.5 million documents had been transferred, Bastian did one last thing to ensure the anonymity of his source. I just wasn't sure that there was no trace of my source on that. And I didn't want to endanger our source. Whatever data that connected back to the source couldn't be just deleted. For safety's sake, it had to be really, really deleted. That meant doing more than just, you know, dragging files into the recycle bin icon on the laptop screen and clicking empty bin. Because, as some of you out there may know, deleting files on your computer doesn't always mean what we think it does. Let's say, hypothetically, that I had a night out on the town last week, and now there are some embarrassing photos that I needed to get rid of. Of course, this is just a made-up scenario. Oh man, Ron, what a night! I didn't know it was physically possible to stick a microphone so far up your own ass. If I select these photos on my smartphone or laptop and put them into my garbage folder, not much changes. They're still on the computer, just found in a different directory. If I then empty that garbage folder, it would seem as if the photos were gone for good. But actually, on the kinds of hard drives you're used to, it's likely that nothing has been literally removed from the device. Rather, it's the pointer to the data that's been forgotten. So your device no longer has the means to locate the data, yet the data remains in storage until it's overwritten by some other data in the future. Since Bastian didn't know for sure that the data on his device couldn't, theoretically, be used to trace back to his source, he had to take extreme measures. He could have wiped the devices, refilled them with a bunch of random new data, and recycled the process a few times over. That probably would have been enough. But actually, there was an even simpler, more effective solution. After we had thoroughly erased everything and we stood next to our, our tech guy and, and I asked her, are we really sure there's not a trace on that and no one, no one can do anything with you know, this stuff now with my, my phone and my, my laptop? And she was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure, but you know, there's no 100%, you know? And we don't know what kind of technology might exist in two years, in five years. And so we thought, okay, what can we do to be 100% sure? And that's when we brought in the hammer and <laughs> started smashing the stuff. And so we just felt better. We also felt silly. Yes, I know. It felt better, and, and yeah, that's why we did yeah. it. Did it ever feel to you like failure was possible in this story? Yes, of course. I mean, we were completely overwhelmed with, you know, the technical part, with, with all the data. Um, we also 
felt that we had we had added too many partners. We so we realized at a certain point that we couldn't stop it anymore, and that didn't really feel good. We realized there's no no emergency button because so many people knew about this and 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 we didn't even know all the names of them and also there were legal risks that we had no clue about how how big they could become you know you don't get sued in new york or in london for your stories because you were writing about you know some germans in germany and you're writing in German. And now we had an English homepage for Süddeutsche Zeitung, and we wrote about Russian oligarchs um, that that had billions, you know? And, and if we had made one big mistake and we would have gotten sued in London or New York, um, you know, Süddeutsche Zeitung, our paper probably wouldn't have survived that. You know, if 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 an oligarch, you know, wants just to use, let's say, only 50 million to sue us in five different countries, that maybe would have been the end of Süddeutsche Zeitung if we had made a mistake. You know, because then maybe some court would have ordered us to pay, you know, for the damage that we did. And then it would have been our fault that our paper would have died after 70 years. Also, I mean, if we would have lost our source, if, if we would have made a mistake in our source, the name would have been public and the, the, you know, the guy would have been arrested or whatever, maybe even killed, um, um, then, I mean, you can stop being a journalist. We're really anxious, we were really nervous, for, for many weeks, you know, it's, it's a leak. What can go wrong with a leak? A lot, a lot, <laughs> a lot can go wrong. A lot could have gone wrong. Yet, incredibly, in spite of everything, most of what could have gone wrong did not. Beginning on April 3, 2016, Süddeutsche Zeitung and newspapers worldwide began publishing leaks from the law firm that helped the world's richest people avoid taxes. They called them the Panama Papers. Almost immediately, the Mossack Fonseca law firm was raided and dismantled. Protests erupted in Brazil, where members of seven different political parties were named in the documents. With the UK's Brexit vote just two months away, several European Union officials were tied to the documents, as well as UK Prime Minister David Cameron and donors and members of his Conservative Party. In Iceland, protests in the capital Reykjavik forced the country's Prime Minister, Sigmundur Gunnlaugsson, to resign. The Prime Minister of Pakistan was later removed from office and sentenced to 10 years in prison. His daughter was sentenced to seven. Meanwhile, in Russia, Vladimir Putin denied any involvement with Mossack Fonseca. 
His spokesperson called the Panama Papers a CIA hoax. After seven Communist Party officials were outed, the Chinese government began a strict crackdown on all news and information related to the leaks. As a result, few Chinese people today know the Panama Papers even exist. In dozens of other countries, though, lawsuits and investigations have been launched, leading to political reforms, litigation, and over a billion dollars recovered in back taxes. Overall, the leaks were a success. But there was one blemish to the story. As journalists from countries around the world were reporting on the crimes relevant to their respective countries, so was the case in Malta. Daphne Galizia, never one to shy away from a fight, was the go-to source for Maltese citizens when it became clear that multiple government officials, including the Prime Minister's wife, Chief of Staff, and another high-ranking minister, were implicated by the Panama Papers. Daphne posted Panama Papers revelations to her blog regularly for months after the initial news. The last blog she ever wrote concerned a court hearing for the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. Her final words read, quote, There are crooks everywhere you look now. The situation is desperate. When we did the Panama Papers, we didn't have an intent, honestly. We wanted to show what we got, but it's not my, my intent to, you know, change the system. And I never thought we could stop equality. Um, I never thought for a second that we could stop wealthy people evading taxes, because, you know, that's what many people do. What we have achieved is that um, the awareness for tax avoidance has risen to a level that has never been in this world before. Um, back then, nearly no one did. Now a lot of people do care about it, and the fact that it still exists and that it's still... Um, a huge problem is sad, but what you also achieved is, you know, very practical that the world of offshore has gotten way more complicated for the people who use it, and there are more rules in the post-Panama Papers world than have been before. You know, in former days, when you had, let's say, you had a, you had a million black money, million euro, million US dollars, and you approach the Swiss bank, let's say Deutsche Bank Switzerland, and you told them that you have got this million here and you don't want to pay taxes and, you know, you just want to hide it somewhere, they probably would have gotten you a Panamanian company with a bank account in Switzerland or Luxembourg. That was it. No taxes anymore on that money. Now, if you go to Deutsche Bank Switzerland with one million euro and you say you're allergic to taxes, they just will look you in the eyes, stone cold, and tell you that's your problem, mister. 
following the Panama Papers, an unidentified source contacted Bastian and Frederick with what would become the Bahamas leaks. The documents tied offshore companies and trusts to the vice president of Angola, the former prime minister of Qatar, and former commissioner of the EU. Later that same year, the duo revealed the so-called Paradise Papers. Of the names included, Juan Manuel Santos, the president of Colombia, U.S. Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross, Prince Charles, and Queen Elizabeth. These days, aside from leaking major financial crimes, Bastian lives with his wife and kids outside of Munich and still reports every day to Süddeutsche Zeitung. And somewhere else in the world, we don't know where, is the person who called themselves John Doe. To this day, even Bastian does not know the identity of that individual who sent him the Panama Papers. For everybody's sake, it's probably better that way. I think like 10 years ago when somebody would have told me, you know, you'll do a huge story, worldwide story about tax avoidance, I would have laughed. I mean, who cares about tax avoidance? That's it for this episode. A big thank you to Bastian Obermeier for being a guest on our show and for the wonderful and important work he and his colleagues are doing every day. This is probably my last chance to remind you of our upcoming live recording that will take place on July 29th, 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Part of the live event will be dedicated to a conversation with Israel Barak, Cyberism's CISO about the relatively new phenomena of multi-stage ransomware attacks, attacks that involved reconnaissance, intelligence gathering, and other attack methodologies that until recently were mostly seen in APT attacks, but are now being employed by organized crime groups as well. The second part of the event will be dedicated to your questions on any topic, from cybersecurity to podcasting. Participation in the live recording is free, but you do need to register in advance, so head on to our website, malicious.life, and click on the registration banner. If you're already there, you can check out our previous episodes and their full transcripts. Follow at malicious.life on Twitter or at ranlevy, R-A-N-L-E-V-I. And you can also reach out to me via email at ran at ranlevy.com. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Maybe your organization needs a podcast, but you're thinking, nah, our domain is too complicated or it's too boring. No one will listen to our podcast. Don't. That's our expertise. Our team of researchers, writers, professional producers, and sound designers are experts in taking a technical dry topic and turning it into an engaging and captivating story. For more information, contact me at ran at ranlevy.com. 
Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music. 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 Music.